everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Lou Ferrante was a mobster who worked for the Gambino crime family and made a trade out of hijacking trucks loaded with expensive goods. Eventually, the law cut up with him, and he ended up in prison. There, he discovered a love for reading and writing, which set off a personal transformation that led to him leaving the mafia. After his stint in jail, Lou went on to become an author and the host of a Discovery Channel's documentary series called Inside the Gangster's Code. Today on the show, I first talked to Lou about his early life of crime and the autodidactic education he gave himself in prison. Lou shares the books that had the biggest impact on him, including works of history, philosophy, and fiction. We then shift gears to discuss Lou's work on Inside the Gangster Code, the idea of honor that the mafia and other gangs share, and what it means to practice omerta. We end our conversation discussing why young men join gangs and the human needs they fill. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash gangsterscode. Lou joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Lou Ferrante, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. So you are a writer. You hosted a show called Inside the Gangster's Code. You're a lecturer. Uh, But before that, you were a member of the Gambino crime family. Uh, Let's start there. We'll talk about what you're you're doing now, but let's start there. Like, How did you get involved with the mafia? Uh, So I guess it's a long evolution. Nobody, unless your unless your family is mafia, which mine wasn't, then you're brought into the into that world, and you know it since you're born. With me, it's a long evolution of of criminal conduct. Devolution would be a better word, but in the context of our conversation, evolution, where I started stealing cars as a kid. From there, uh, a friend of mine's uncle owned a, a body shop, an auto body collision shop, and we started supplying him with parts from stolen cars. From there, we got some more orders from different collision shops. And uh, then we started running a chop shop. So as I'm sort of like aging from 13, probably when I was in my first stolen car to like 17, you know, I, I went from just joyriding to selling the parts to running my own chop shop and supplying most of the collision shops around Queens. Most of the crooked ones, that is. And most of them at that time were crooked, believe it or not. Um, and from there, I was in an auto body shop one day and I'm talking to this guy and I'm BSing with him. And there was this huge tool chest next to me, next to us. And it was one of the, you know, you probably, if you've ever been in a body shop, 
these mechanics have these big tool chests that are probably like shoulder height. And I said, wow, look at the size of this baby. What's this go for? And he said, you know, whatever, five grand. So I said, yeah, really? And he said, yeah, the truck comes once a week to sell tools for the, for that chest. And they even got a couple of the chests usually in the truck. What's the truck worth? Probably got about a hundred thousand worth of stuff in it. So I said, you want one? He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'll take one for you if you want it. You're going to pay me. And we made, you know, we negotiated a price and I, that was the first truck I hijacked, hijacked it with friends of mine from the neighborhood. And, um, from there we ended up figuring that, Hey, look, you know what? By the time you steal a car and piece it out and you're working all, all night overnight, chopping this thing down, got to get rid of the chassis. You got to get somebody to rent us the building that we usually abandoned because it would be rented under a, a phony name. And we would like fill up a warehouse with skeletons. Sometimes we dump the skeletons in, um, in different parks in Queens. And it was a lot of work. So here I am hijacking a truck and hundred thousand dollars worth of merchandise in five minutes, you know, in my possession. And so we did that. And an interesting thing happened with that first hijacking. We, we got underway, you know, I put a gun to the guy, took the truck. My friends jumped on board after that and we were underway and we had tied him up and we were driving. And at some point we were nice to him. We said, look, you know what? And it looked not, notwithstanding the horrible thing we were doing, we weren't bad people. We came from good families. We weren't like evil, malicious. We didn't want to hurt the guy. We just wanted the truck and we let him know that, you know, you'll be home tonight at five o'clock eating dinner with your family. Just, just sit tight. And don't cause us a problem. And he said to us after we had, we had to drive to Jersey with the truck. And so it was a little bit of a ride. And at some point we loosened, you know, the bonds on him and we stuck a pillow under his ass. We asked him if there's anything in the truck that he needed. He said, there's some pictures of my family on the visor. There's also a manifest sheet in a, in like one of those metal sort of like, um, bulletin board folders. And he goes, can you give me that? Stick it under my arm so it'll help me when I, when I assess, you know, what was stolen. So we did all that for him. And, um, we asked him if he's thirsty, you know, we could stop at a, a you know, a, a quick mart or something, get him a drink. We were very nice to the guy. Again, notwithstanding that I had just stuck a gun in his mouth, you know, to be, to be completely, you know, blunt and clear. So he said, you know, you guys are nice guys. You ever think this stuff will catch up with you? And it was the first hijacking that I had ever done and that they had ever done my future, you know, part of these guys became my gang and it just went right over my head. You know, how could you imagine that something's going to catch up with you when you're doing the first time? So yeah, I didn't, but years later sitting in a prison cell with cockroaches crawling all over me, knife attacks. Um, I was in Lewisburg for murders when uh, inmates were, were hacked to death with machetes, you know, it all came back to me. And I said, wow, you know, that, that guy, that guy saw my whole future when he said, if you ever thought, you ever think this would catch up with you, it was my first time. And then, it, you know, it was like, that was a springboard for a, a whole career in hijacking, which led to armored cars, which led to truck heists and you name it. We stole, you know, safes. I remember the agents when they arrested us, they said to my lawyer that I was bigger than Jimmy Burke. And my lawyer said, Louie never killed anybody. And he said, I meant the heists. And Jimmy Burke was the guy played by Robert De Niro as Jimmy Conway in Goodfellas. And another agent once said that we were like Heat. And it, once again, we if you take Heat, if you ever watch the movie Heat with De Niro and Pacino, we were as fine-tuned as that gang. We just weren't as violent. We weren't killing people, shooting up the streets. And now looking back, you know, I had time to obviously digest it all later on when I turned my life around and I regretted everything I did. 
I thank God that we never had shootouts in the street or anything because it could have happened. You know, here's, here's a bunch of guys. None of us were trained to use firearms and we're running around the streets like, you know, like cowboys and committing havoc. And at any, at any point in time, somebody could have, could have tried us and it would have been a shootout in the street. And we could have not only got killed ourselves, which wouldn't have been as bad, I think, but maybe killed an innocent person, which would have been worse. So, you know, I mean, look, that in that, in, re- in relation to, the reference of being like the movie Heat, I would say, yeah, you know, potentially is dangerous, but we weren't, thank God. You know, the, the, the fortune was with us in that sense where we pulled off all our heists seamlessly, got away from the crime scene, went home and just like, you know, congratulated each other and, you know, went out for a drink or something. But we, we were able to never have that sort of like mayhem in the street, which could have happened. Right. And so how far up did you get up in the organization? Were you just a foot soldier? Oh yeah. So that was the original question, how I got into the mob. So the the hijacking trucks basically led to like the mafia is, for example, like, let's say you, you own a store and you open up a store, let's say in, uh, I don't know where in, in Los Angeles and you're selling surfboards. You might not be selling surfboards in Los Angeles, but wherever. And, you know, eventually you're making good money. You think everything's great. At some point, the IRS is going to knock on your door and say, look, you owe the government taxes. Did you know that? And you know, you're going to have to start paying your taxes. If you didn't know that already, you're going to have to start. So the, the mafia is a government within a government. And if you're hijacking trucks and making a lot of money and pulling down scores, they're going to hear about you as they did with me. And then they're going to approach you. You know, they're, they're, they're the IRS of the underworld and they want to know what's going on and how much you're going to pay. And, but it's not just like a one-sided relationship because, you know, that if it was, a lot of guys would be like, you know, F you. And there'd be a lot of bloodshed, a lot more. And it, there, a lot of bloodshed is saved because it's a symbiotic relationship. It works for both parties because once I'm in with the mob, I have tremendous power. I have much more power than I had ever had alone or with just my crew. Now I'm getting tips instead of like, you know, one truck at a time, I'm getting trip, uh, uh, tips on a million dollar score. You know, I might have to kick back to a skipper, you know, capo, captain. Or, or whoever gave me the tip or my tip guy, but you know, I'm making way more money. And now I'm able to loan shock the money, you know, put it out on the street once I make it. So now I'm starting my own bank, you know, so the, the benefits to being in the mob, there's no limit to it. And also too, they benefit by having you because you're making them money as well. The mob is a pyramid scheme. You know, the money flows up to the top. So, so that's sort of like how that happened without giving up names of the, of the original people who brought me around. But one guy led to another, to another. And at some point or another, I was running my own crew within the Gambino crime family and I was answering directly to the heads of my family. I actually practically lived in, um, Peter Gotti's house. Pete, Pete was John Gotti's oldest brother. He was a captain in the family and I was in and out of his house for probably about five or six, maybe seven years every day. So, you know, that, that's, that was basically, you know, I mean, that, that's where my home was. So, you know, you could, you could draw the conclusions from there. I was not yet a made man when I went away. I was 25 years old. I would have been made. It was only, you know, a question of time and I got pinched and the FBI pinched me. The Secret Service pinched me and the Nassau County Organized Crime Task Force. And when I went to jail, I thought it was like the worst thing in the world because I didn't get my button yet. And I had friends who I did crimes with every day who were coming up to see me on visits and saying, you know, I just got straightened out. I got my button. You'll get yours when you come home, you know, and uh, they were going to put me up when I got home. One of them still tried to when I came home and I was a completely different man and, you know, I didn't want it. And he, he said, I heard that, but I didn't think you were serious, you know, because he wanted to, to sponsor me. 
And I said, no, it's legit. I'm, I'm really done with that, you know, with the life. That's it. But I'm jumping ahead of the story, basically. Um, so that's sort of like where I, where I sat and how it sort of evolved. All right. Well, so let's talk about in prison. You had this, you know, massive change that, that happened to you. What was there a moment in prison where it, like you, you could pinpoint and say that was the moment where that change started it happening? Was. Yeah. Okay. What was it? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll tell you that I'll work, I'll work up to sort of like the, that monumental moment that really clicked in my head. But the first thing that was happening was I was starting to, I believed in the rules of the mafia. I believed in like loyalty and the code, honor, omerta. I believed in all those things. And I thought it was the greatest thing on earth, you know, to have something like that. It's the same reason why young guys might join the Marines. You know, they want that sort of like camaraderie and, and, and that, you know, the, the few, the proud. And that's how I thought I was in my neighborhood, you know, with, with the same, you know, with the Marines of my neighborhood in my mind. And, uh, you know, not to compare us to the, to, to, to the Marines, but that's, that's, it's not far of a stretch in our minds. And when I was in jail, so first on the street, guys would sometimes disappear. Guy got killed. And you would think that he automatically, you would just assume that he did something against the family, committed some type of treason against the family. And just as if you commit treason against the country, you could get it executed. So that's what happened. You know, you didn't ask no questions. If you did, people were wondering why. Why are you asking? Are you a rat? Why you want to know what happened to so-and-so? You just keep your mouth shut. The guy disappeared and that's the end of it. Or, you know, he was left on the street. That's that. Or, or one of my dear friends was in a trunk. He was stinking for a week before someone found him. I didn't ask any questions, but then I'm away and I'm starting to, you know, I'm around guys who were fighting their, their murder cases. And a lot of guys that I know died. I'm starting to realize that they died for different reasons, not necessarily because they committed an offense against the family, which, which could imperil all of us, but because one guy was screwing another, you know, somebody's Rather, I'm sorry, somebody was screwing a guy's wife and he wanted to kill the husband so he could have the wife to himself. Another one was over money. You know, they owned a business together. And if he kills him, he's worth a million dollars a year more. So he killed him. And, you know, they come up with reasons like, you know, the guy's a rat. I got to kill him. You know, so it was a lot of like, a lot of like disgusting things that I'm observing in jail. You know, while we're all talking about our indictments and here I am, I just got heist and hijackings, you know, and, and after the score, I whacked up the money with everybody fairly. We all took our, our cut and went home. I kicked a piece up to my, you know, my, my boss. And that was that. And end of the day, you know, I wasn't looking to like kill somebody treacherously to take something that was somebody else's, whether it be a wife, a sister or money or a business. It just wasn't in me. If you gave me a billion dollars to kill somebody, I would have told you you're nuts. Why would I kill somebody for money? But if you told me that somebody raped your daughter, I would, I would have said, wait for me outside. I'll be there in five minutes. And whoever did it was going in my trunk. You know, I mean, that's like what I believed in. You know, that was different. So, so now I'm in jail and I'm, so I'm like weighing all of this. And then a lot of things was sort of weighing on me. And I went to the hall. I was going to the hall now and then I was quick with my hands. If somebody, Look, I got a Napoleon complex. I'm like five foot four, maybe five five on a good day with, with, with sneakers on. And um, I had a chip on my shoulder, maybe, but if somebody got out of line, I cracked them hard. You know, let's do this. And I always was quick to fight. And I'm in jail and I'm acting the same way. So I'm going to the hole now and then. And then at one point I go to the hole for something I didn't do. I didn't, didn't, did not do. And what happened was somebody, it's considered assault. One of the guards, the hacks on on duty called us late for our visits and everybody was mad. 
And it was in a holdover in MDC, Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. And one of the guys that night got up out of his bunk, took an apple and wung it at the guard. And it you know broke apart on it, cracked him in the eye, gave him a shine, it broke apart on his head. The guy hit the floor. And next thing you know, everybody's throwing stuff at him. So he was assaulted. But it came from my direction. I hung out with all the old timers and it was an old time Sicilian gangster who did it. So they came up and they figured I was the only young guy in that row. So they locked me up. You know, they, they roughed me up all the way to the hole. So they're, they're like, who did it? I go, F you, who did it? My, you know, your sister did it. That's who did it. So, you know, I'm in the hole now and they, they strip me and they give me, they take my clothes. And when they bring you to the hole, they take your clothes in case you got like a razor sort of sewn in to something or whatever. And they give you clothes that are designated for the hole that have been washed. There's no way you could kill yourself or, you know, commit any type of violence, supposedly, you know, obviously there's ways convicts get around all that, but they gave, they're supposed to give me another uniform for the whole, like a jumpsuit. And they didn't. And I'm naked in my cell. I didn't get my mattress. I didn't get my pillow. They want to know who assaulted the guard if it wasn't me. So obviously nobody can say they said I did it because I didn't. So, you know, the guard could have lied, but he didn't. He must've said it came from my direction. They figured pick me. It should have been me. It wasn't. So now they keep saying who did it. I'm, I'm telling them, you know, go find out yourself, Sherlock. So now I got no clothes, no mattress, no pillow. Eventually, slowly but surely, I got all that stuff back. But then the captain of the guards came down and asked me who did it. And I said, I look, you know, that's on you, but you know, buddy, I'll stay here all year if I have to. So, you know, who's going to give first me or you? He left. He said, no food. So now I'm not eating. So now I'm like, oh man, I can't believe it. And I'm starving. And when you're in jail and you're in the hole, all you have to look forward to is the breakfast, the lunch, and the four o'clock dinner. Then you got to make sure like after four o'clock, there's no picking. So whatever you got at four o'clock that you ate, it's got to last you to tomorrow at 6, 7 a.m. So you look forward to the meals and you got nothing else going on but staring at a brick wall and wondering at that point, because I hadn't changed yet, wondering how I'm going to avenge you know, whoever's ratting on me, how I'm going to torture them, how I'm going to kill this guy and get that guy and you know the whole thing. So- at some point or another, he, the captain of the guards the next day, oh, what happened was that night though, first, there was a, a Spanish guy from South or Central America who used to sweep the floor and then mop it. He was an inmate in the hole himself and he was the orderly. So I go, amigo, amigo. I knocked on this. Like, there's like this bulletproof glass that you could see like that's eye level with the human head. And then there's this like food slot that's sort of like waist level that you, you, your trays are shoved through. So I was looking through the glass, banging on the glass. I go, amigo, amigo, mangiata, mangiata, io mangiata. I, that's Italian, you know, eat. I figured it'll, he'll, he'll figure it out in Spanish. So he goes, un momento, un momento. And he comes back and he shoves bread under my door that just barely fit under my door. I had to squeeze it through. So I eat this dusty, dirty bread. And then he shoved these little jelly packets that he crushed and I sucked them dry. And I, gracias, gracias, senor. So now I'm like, all right, I got a guy to feed me, you know, so I ain't afraid of this, this captain of the guards once again. So the next day he comes, he opens the food slot, he bends down and he goes, hey, Ferrante, so you're going to tell me now that you're not eating, whatever, you're going to tell me who drew the, who assaulted the guard. And I said, no, matter of fact, I'm not. And I walk over food slot and I go, and another thing, and I reach my hand through and I grab him by the tie, the necktie, and I yank it. I wanted to strangle this guy, you know, this SOB. You know, I mean, you, you're going to play a game with me? I'm in the hole anyway. May as well assault a cop if I'm, if I'm here for one anyway. So he, I pulled the tie off his neck. It was a clip on. 
So I'm like, <laughs> you know, you dirty bastard. And I threw the tie back at him. He slams the food slot. And he's looking at me and he goes, he goes, of course, it's a clip on. He says, you think we'd wear real ties with you animals in here? He says, you're nothing but a low life animal. Cause look at yourself. You're in a cage. He goes, as if the prison ain't, ain't good enough for you. You got to be in a prison inside of a prison. And he was right. You know, I mean, I don't remember exact words, but the context of it was just that. And, uh, so I'm like, man, you know, that day, that was the click. That was, so everything probably was building up in me already, but that was the click. Now, at that moment, I felt like an animal and I realized that my mother, my poor mother who died in my arms when I was young, didn't raise me like this. She didn't raise me to shoot people or stab people or punch people or or, or hijack trucks and stick guns in people's mouths. My mother taught me to hold the door for people, to be polite, you know, to always care for the older people on my block. She she taught me, you know, she gave me a right... a good moral code. I just wasn't using it. And, and I, my mind was all twisted up. So from that day on, I had a lot of thinking to do and I did. And, and, um, everything sort of like flipped and now it, it everything flipped in my mind, but I didn't flip. That's the key. And I, I don't know. I don't at the risk of jumping ahead in, in, in your story here, but I never became a rat. And because I realized that what I had done was wrong, a lot of rats go, oh, I realized what I was done was wrong. So I started to cooperate. They just want the door. I'm not going to dishonor, you know, my, 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 myself or, or put my friends in jail because of what I did. And that's what, what galls me about rats. I hate them. You know, I mean, you know, I still, I try not to, I say I don't anymore. I like to say I don't because everybody, you know, God is the only judge and everybody has to, you know, meet their maker one day or, or you know, face natural justice in this world, whatever you might believe, but I do believe in natural justice and karma. So I don't, I like to try to not to hate them, but for for me at that point, I did, and I wasn't going to be a rat, but I was going to change my life. So I got out of the hole and I asked my buddy, um, Fat George from, who was the caretaker of John Gotti's social club. I asked him to, he had tattoos all over his body and I go, yeah, he had all biblical verses and stuff written on his body. He was covered from head to toe in tattoos, a 400 pound man. You can imagine how much art was on him. And I go, you know, hey, fatso, I called him up. Hey, fatso, you know, you got stuff written all over your body. Do you read? He says, yeah, I read. So I can you send me some books? He goes, yeah, what kind of books do you want? You know, big, big boobs, fat asses. What are you into? I go, no, no, a book to read. And I want to read something. Oh, okay. What do you want to read? I go, I have no idea. You know, go to the bookstore tell whoever's working all about me. Maybe to have some ideas. I just want to just clear my head, get it away from all the stuff in here. And this is when I got out of the hole, by the way. And when I got out of the hole, everybody greeted me like, you know, cause I, I did the honorable thing. I didn't rat for something I didn't do. I did the time while I didn't even do the crime. So everybody was greeting me like, you know, a hero. And it just didn't move me anymore. Normally I would, that would have pumped up my ego. You know, I would, I would have felt proud of myself and, you know, I did my time in the hole for somebody else. Yeah. You know, they, they make you a dish of pasta. You know, everybody's, you know, really kind to you when you get out of the hole. And I didn't even care. I was like, yeah, I just want to get away from these guys now and just think. So Fat George sent me in, uh, he sent me in three books. I was playing Pinochle when I got the books. My partner was the boss of the Colombo family at the time, Vic Arena. And, uh, Vic goes, where are you going? I go, oh, I got to go to the package room. And that was the last time I ever played Pinochle. I got my books, came upstairs. Oh, it's kind of funny. So he sent me, um, I opened a, I opened a box and he sent me Caesar's Gallic Wars, Napoleon by Vincent Cronin and Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. So I'm like, oh man, what the, what the F is this? So I call up George and I go, Hey fatty. 
I go, well, I got the books, but where'd you get them ideas? He goes, I, from the girl. He goes, you told me, go to the bookstore. I told the broad all at the bookstore all about you. And she gave me those books. I go, what'd you tell her? He says, I told her you were short and bossy. So she, she picked three dictators. So, <laughs> so that was my first, the first books I ever read. And I almost understood nothing of what I was reading. But the fact that I was like really a determined guy all the time, I always, I always persevered if I was going to do something. I stuck with it and I read the books cover to cover and I, I understood almost, I mean, what the hell, who the hell, who the hell can understand Hitler's national socialist movement even today? You know, like what the hell he was talking about. If you go back today and read Mein Kampf, you're going to be like, what is this moron talking about? You know, and, and, and so imagine me trying to understand it after hijacking trucks. You know, I just totally was, I didn't understand anything to give you a, to give you an idea of how distant I was from history at that point and how little I understood a mobster had at some point years later, I became like the guru for like questions about anything, history, philosophy, science, you name it. They came up to me. I was like Google in jail. Some, a couple of gangsters were arguing and they came up to me and they go, Hey Lou, you got to settle this beef for us. Who won when Napoleon fought Caesar? I go, it was 1800 years apart. You know, like, what do you mean? Who won? But I laughed. But meanwhile, that I wouldn't have known before I read, before I understood history. How do you know these things? So, you know, it was like that began, though, the journey for me for education. That's that was the start. And that was the monumental to get back to your question. That was the monumental moment in which my mind just like totally like and then I had nothing but time after that hit me when the, after I pulled the cops necktie off i had nothing but time to sit in my cell and think in that in that hole until i was released which which was a benefit you know god works in mysterious ways i don't know it, you, all your listeners may or may not believe in god i believe there's a higher power and I, or i believe in fortune or fate if you don't want to if you don't want to attribute it to god but something leads us along this journey here on earth we're not just like dumped out of the sky you know there's something there's a plan and i think you need to follow it and and i was happy that at that point in my life I noticed that there was a path for me and I followed it and it was a life changing decision. And, and I, I would just counsel any of your listeners that if you, if you have that wake up moment, don't discard it, you know, think about it, dwell on it and go for it. Don't, don't discard it. There's, 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 there's meaning behind it. And as long as it's leading you in a good way, a good path, do it. You know, if you, if you have this mind, if you have this big moment where you think, you know, Oh, God just told me to kill my neighbor. So they shot the music off so I could sleep. It, it, that's not coming from God. I can't imagine that, you know, but if it's a good thing, follow it. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made to measure suit. Suit started just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off the rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made to measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, 
then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Well, Emil, I'm curious more about your readings. I know our listeners are readers. Oh, good. So the first three books you read were mm-hmm. uh, Biography of Napoleon, The Gaelic Wars, and Mein Kampf. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you start reading after you started reading those books? So what I did was those were really hard for me. And at some point, you know, I probably should have been reading like the adolescent version of Hawk Finn. You know, I mean, something like really, you know, really like rudimentary for like, I don't know what I should have been reading, but not those books. So at some point, what I did was I realized that I liked history. And, and so I gravitated towards history and biographies, but I probably, you know, took a step back and, you know, picked easier books to get through. So I started reading like 
biographies and history were my favorites. And how I taught myself how to write is by, I would read like the, I, I fell in love with the masters of 19th century fiction, like Gustave Flaubert, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Thomas Hardy, the Englishman, Tom, even 20th century, Thomas Wolfe, the American, the early American Thomas Wolfe, you know, can't go home again. The Bronte sisters, George Eliot, you name it, I read it, Stendhal. You know, I, I just, I couldn't get enough of those books and I couldn't digest them quickly enough. And I fell in love with them because there were stories where they were easier for me to sort of like follow a story. And in the beginning, my, my vocabulary really sucked. So I, I bought a dictionary for a stamp in jail. It was missing like XYZ. So my vocabulary was a little weaker in that, in that area. But every, every word I couldn't, I didn't understand. I looked up and then I used to make, I used to write across from the words. I probably remembered this from like little school or something. I used to write the definition and then study it every night before I went to bed in my cell. So that's how I've expanded my vocabulary. Most of the words I had, by the time I wrote a novel in jail myself, most of the words that I had, I was writing and using in my mind regularly, I had never even heard spoken. You know, I would hear a word, my lawyer would say a word and I'd say, what the hell did he just say? And it was a word I knew, but he had, he had, he, he had, pronounced it differently than my mind pronounced it because I had never, ever, ever seen these words other than in print. I never heard them rather. So, so that was interesting. But, um, at some point I started to say to myself in the midst of reading history biographies, and I started to realize that there was a bibliography in the back where you could use one book to find others. So that was nice because I would read something in a book. Maybe I was reading, um, Winston Churchill and they referenced Pitt the Elder or Pitt the Younger. You know, maybe he had a picture of him in his room or something. I don't know, just hypothetically. And then I would say, Oh, who's Pitt the Elder or Pitt the Younger? And then I would look for him and then read about the pits and, and things like that would, would, would sort of like lead me from one direction to another. And I realized that although I wasn't the type to sit in a classroom. I hated school, never went to college. I did graduate high school because I promised my mother who I loved that I would, and she died shortly after. But uh, I cheated my way to high school. My friend Jorge Avia used to help me cheat. He used to slip the, the answers to me or write them on his wrist and put his hand behind his back. Andrea, Angela, they, people did homework for me. But now I, I hated school, but now here I am and I'm, and I'm, I can't get enough education. I'm absolutely in love with books I'm, and I'm reading 18 hours a day. The muscles in my eyes would ache by the time I go to bed and I'd start first thing in the morning once again. And I realized that I did love education. It was just, I loved sort of like the free networking of education, like, you know, the free association, just go where your mind takes you. And that was the best thing for me. It wasn't where I could sit in the classroom and, you know, you know, some, some, I don't know, some teacher who maybe I don't connect with you know, is trying to tell me you have to do this and you have to do that. And I want to see it. And then he judges my work and who, you know, who is this? My, my attitude would have been then who the hell is this guy to judge me? You know, what, what are you doing? You know, who are you, you know, big cheese? Did you think you're going to, you know, think you're going to judge me? That was my, my sort of like attitude at the time, but I loved reading. I loved, I fell in love with education. So at some point the books I was reading, the, the nonfiction I was learning, I was learning about science, philosophy. I went back to the, uh, early philosophers. I read the, you know, the ancient Greeks. I read the plays. I read, you know, the, up until rather the Romans, then up through the enlightenment philosophers, the French philosophers. I, you know, and I fell in love with all that stuff. But besides that, I was teaching myself how to write by every time I picked up a novel, I would read, let's say it was Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. I would read it, but I would take meticulous notes in the margins and like how did Tolstoy introduce a character? How did, how did he 
weave his plot? How did he develop his plot? How did he exit a character? How did his chapter begin and end? I would take meticulous notes. So sooner or later, these great authors, whoever they might have been, Jane Austen, who knows, Charlotte Bronte, they, they were, it was everything they know, everything Charlotte Bronte knew about writing is in Jane Eyre, right? So if you take that one single masterpiece, it's a, it's a university lesson times a million in writing because no professor has ever achieved what Charlotte Bronte has in the field of writing. And everything she knew was dumped into Jane Eyre. So if you know how to dissect what she's doing and basically take it apart and teach yourself, it's a course in writing. So every then book that I read thereafter, whether it be, let's say, Thomas Hardy, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, whatever I was reading after that became my university lesson in writing. And I was you know, I had the luxury of isolation, which at first killed me. You know, I wasn't the kind of guy. I was a social character. I was very gregarious all my life. And now here I am trapped in this cell. But once I was learning and educating myself in writing, I realized that isolation was, was, was a blessing. And this was a good thing. You know, this, this wasn't such a bad thing after all. And, you know, to be able to, and then also too, you know, now, you know, nowadays I write. Um, my last book was the best international bestseller in 20 languages, but you know, I have to discipline myself and lock myself in a room, but I also have to come out of that room now and then and pay the bills and figure out how I'm going to get through the month and through the year. And that, you know, that's sort of like a big burden on any writer's shoulders unless he or she is living on a trust fund and most people aren't. So I was, I had that, that sort of like luxury also of, I'm living in a cell, but I'm being fed my meals three times a day while all I have to do is read for 18 hours. So I kind of like shifted the whole torture of prison. And again, I, I say again, by the grace of God or what have you, something in my life had changed. And I think whenever we change our lives, sort of like, you know, the tragedies become blessings and that tragedy of prison and the isolation and, and the torture of prison. Cause prison is torture. It's, you know, it just became a moderate light torture to me, you know, and, and, but ignorance is a heavier set of chains than, than prison. And I was, I was, I was enchained in ignorance before I went to prison. So now here I was and I had escaped my ignorance, but I was in a prison cell, but I'd rather escape ignorance and be in a prison cell than, than be, be free and be enchained by ignorance. So, you know, I, I saw the blessing in having nothing to do, but just teach myself how to write. And I, and I, I fell in love with books and I, I thank God for that. And I just kept writing. I love that story of your, how books contributed to your transformation. And so you, you educated yourself and part of your education, you actually appealed your own conviction. You learned the law and you get out mm-hmm. and you, you, you made the decision while you're in prison. You didn't want to go back to, to the life. So you decided, what was your plan? Like, what was your plan after you got out? When I went to my final team meeting, they have team meetings in prison where they bring you into this room and the prison administration is, is around this big table and they ask you what you're up to and they want to know when you're ready to go home, what your plans are. And the system is disgusting, by the way. It's horrible. They really don't prepare people for the outside world. Most people just vegetate in front of a television. They commit violence. They do drugs. Everything is available in prison. And then they're ready to be just tossed out onto the street. And they're asked a few sort of like rote questions that there's, you know, as long as they push, you know, back the right answers to this administration, they're let out and told, oh, sounds good. You know, a guy could go, oh, I'm going to be uh, an electrician. Okay. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Next, 
you know, so I went in front of this team meeting and they asked me, how are you, Mr. Ferrante? Very good. Thank you. Yeah. What do you intend to do when you, when you go home? I'm going to be a best-selling author. Ah, ha, ha, ha. They were hysterical around the table. So they said, no, for real. What, what, what do you have lined up? And I said, no, no, for real. I'm going to be an author, hopefully best-selling. Ah, ha, ha, ha. It was hysterical again. So I said, well, that's, that's really all I have planned. You know, I can't tell you I'm going to go into construction. I really don't have any interest in it. My family was in construction, by the way. My grandfather and my uncle drove bulldozers. That was supposed to be my trade before I started hijacking. I was on a bulldozer from when I was a kid, a backhoe. I drove all kinds of operating engineering equipment and, you know, I never, I didn't like it. So, you know, I didn't want to bounce around on, in, on, on gravel, you know, digging holes in the street. So. You know, not to, not to take away from anybody who does. I think it's a great job if you if you if you like it. I didn't. I wanted to do something different. So I told them, I'm not going to tell you a lie. I'm not going to. You know, I, I'm going to be an author. And they let me. It's okay, fine. Let them go. Next, you know, and that's what I became. So, you know, I guess I had the last laugh in that sense. Yeah, you did exactly what you said you'd do. You got out and you wrote a best-selling book. It was Mob Rules. And other opportunities came out of that, including, and this is how I first learned about you, hosting a show on the Discovery Channel called Inside the Gangster's Code, where you travel around the world to the world's most dangerous gangs to see what they're like. And it's just so fascinating because you get up close and personal with these guys. Uh, So for those who aren't familiar with the show, what sorts of gangs did you go and visit and and interact with? Yeah, so I'm glad you saw the show too and you liked it. Thank you. Inside the Gangster's Code was... Was a, was a one of a kind show at the time. Nobody had done really anything to that level. And the access we had was incredible. For example, we traveled to El Salvador and we met with the 18th Street gang who sort of controls El Salvador along with, um, MS 13. They're basically the two gangs that have control of El Salvador in so many ways. You know, re- really, really, if you ever go to El Salvador, you would see how powerful they are in the country. And we, we were able to get into the jungles and go to the prisons that were hidden away in the jungles and lock in with the most vicious gangsters, you know, who, who had murdered one of the, one of the prisons I locked in with the, with the gangsters and lived with them in there. Right before we got there, they had murdered a guy in the corner of the, of the yard, right where I was standing with them because he, they found out he was a snitch and that was it. The boss said, you know, cut him up. And that was the end of him. They hacked him up right in the corner. And then another prison I was in actually in Bilibid in the Philippines, which was a crazy prison. It was a world within itself, you know, a hustling, bustling world of its own with a wall around it. It was like Escape from New York. If, if any of your older viewers remember the movie with Kurt Russell, it was like that. And right after I had left, a guy got shot right where I was standing, a gang leader inside the prison, meaning that there were guns in the prison. You know, they, they had machine guns, they had handguns inside the prison. And the, one of the gang leaders told me that off camera. He said, look, I can't say it on camera, but you know, we're fully armed in here. And then shortly after I had, I had left that prison, right, right, right after I left, a guy got killed. What I love about the show, uh, it, it is, it's, it's entertaining, but it's also like you, it's like you're a soci- you're being a sociologist or an anthropologist when you're talking mm-hmm. to these guys. Uh, so let me, let's talk about the idea of the gangster's code. When you've gone and you've visited all these different types of gangs and even your own experience being a member of a gang, does that code pretty much stay the same across gangs? Yeah. I mean, there's not like really like, there's not like a catalog of rules. You know, people are intrigued by, there are a lot of like, so in the mafia, which probably has a lot more rules than regular gangs in the mafia, there's sort of like this oral code. It's almost like this Homeric 
this Homeric epic where all these stories about past mob life are always retold and, you know, how so-and-so got killed and how so-and-so did this. And that was sort of like what my, my book Mob Rules was based on. It was sort of like that Homeric mafia code or Talmudic, I should even say, uh, where they, where they go back and forth with how they should do something. So that, you know, there's like, you're not, but, the, but the basic thing, you know, aside from like the minutia of how to handle certain beefs or how to uh, introduce yourself, the basic code of the mafia is honor. Honor your, your, your fellow thieves, which is, you know, the twist of it. And, you know, you can't go with somebody's wife. You can't go with somebody's sister without permission. You, you know, those are punishable by death. A ratting, snitching obviously is punishable by death. Here's a story for you that goes back to the Homeric code, right? The mafia's Homeric code, like Homeric epic code, let's, let's say. Let's call it for the, for the moment. My friend was in a beef with, uh, his sister got caught at a park with a bottle by another girl. So when he, she came home bleeding all over the place, he ran to the park and beat up the girl. And he figured if she could cut my sister with a broken bottle and act like a man, then I could treat her like a man and hit her. What he did was wrong because it was a mobster's daughter and you can't beat up a mobster's daughter and you can't beat up a girl. Those are against the rules. So the mobster, the father, when he heard about it, he went to my friend's house and he, uh, banging, banging on the door with guns. A couple of friends, they had guns and the mother answered the door and had a fight with him on the porch and she's wrestling with him on the porch and told him to get out of there. So when they went to the sit down, it was ruled that my friend was wrong for beating up the girl, even though she was wrong for cutting his sister with a bottle. He should have went to the father and let the father discipline her. Then by the father going to the house, the house is sacred and it's off limits. So nobody's supposed to go to somebody's home. So by him going to somebody's home, which he did, and offending the mother, then it was a wash. So the beef was squashed and that was it. So those are the rules in the mafia, how they're applied. And, you know, when I say the home is sacred, now it's after the reign of like gas pipe Casso in the nineties, the Lucchese family, they killed a guy. They killed somebody from my family, Bobby Borriello in front of his house. There was another guy in the Colombo war during the Colombo family war in the early nineties. He was hanging Christmas lights in front of his house. He was shot in front of his house. But before that, it was off limits to go near someone's house. That's the de- degenerative sort of like slide the mafia has been taken in uh, over the last couple of decades where they do go to somebody's house now. But back then, I wasn't allowed to go to your house. If, if let's say, for example, you, Brett, owed me a hundred thousand and I knew where you lived. I, I could literally be killed if I went banging on your door demanding my money because I'm offending whoever lives with you, including your mother or your wife or your daughter or your sons or whoever. And by doing that, I'm offending your family and family honor is everything. And that's what it's supposed to be about. Now I could catch you down the street and run you over with my car and the family, the same family I don't want to offend has to visit you in the hospital and bring you flowers and get, you know, buy you food from the outside because hospitals, food stinks, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to follow the code. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to kill you away from your house, but I can't do it when you're at home. So I believed in those little things. I thought that that was sacred. And for many decades, mafias, mobsters rather, no matter in the midst of the most brutal, savage wars, where, where the strife was, was, you know, you was so, it was so, it was like, you know, Fallujah when the Marines went in, in Iraq, you know, it was like so tense. 
they they could come and go in their houses and they knew that they could they could sit in front of the television with the window open and watch tv because nobody would attempt to go near your home and that's that's eroded so those are how some of the rules have eroded as well over recent years so it's this sense of honor that that's that's the code that's like sort of the that's the, it that's, the, that's it yeah. yeah that's it in a nutshell yeah omerta omerta was originally supposedly also too this is an interesting word omerta omerta wasn't just silence we we look at it today as americans we look at the word omerta and we say you shh, keep your mouth shut you know don't don't rat on people be quiet like or if you know people come from neighborhoods italian neighborhoods when i was young if there was like Somebody was shot on the block. All the neighbors, even if they were legitimate people, knew to keep their mouths shut. They understood Omerta. The cops came. Anybody see anything? Everybody said no. And the cops got in the car and went home. You know, that was just the way it was. But Omerta, the original meeting of Omerta in the Sicilian form from Sicily originally, when the mafia first formed in Sicily, Omerta meant being a man and doing something yourself. So for example, if I'm in jail, and let's say you double crossed me and you're outside and you're not giving me the money that's due to my family. You're supposed to drop off money at my house and give my family money that's due to me while I'm in jail, but you're not doing that. So I'm mad at you. Now, if I have to do 20 years, omerta means I have to, I have to handle things on my own. I have to wait the 20 years, come out and then see you and take care of you or get my comrades on the street to go, to go find you. But I don't rat and get the police to help me get you. But nowadays, people don't follow Omerta. They say, okay, Brett's not paying my family. I'm going to wrap Brett out. I'm going to become a, a confidential informant or I'm going to become, I'm going to the witness protection program and I'll give Brett 20 years. What you're doing is you're enlisting the government or the police force to be your, your co-conspirators and punishing your, your, your sort of like enemies. That's not Omerta. That's why the Sicilians never went to the police. Omerta means if you, somebody shot my son yesterday, I don't go to the police. And this was the old mafia. You don't go to the police. You take care of that justice yourself. You find out who shot your son and you find the guy and you take care of it yourself. It was being a man. And it originated in Sicily because Sicily couldn't rely on the police. You know, here in America, we can rely on our police. We can rely on the FBI. They do a darn good job, you know, in keeping the streets clean. It's why we could, you know, notwithstanding some neighborhoods in this country that are very dangerous, for the most part, America is a place where you know, your daughter could run out for milk and come home without anything happening to her. And I feel bad for the neighborhoods where that can happen, what can't, cannot. But in Sicily, you couldn't rely on the police force to have the streets, you know, kept lawful or, or the government you couldn't rely on. The mafia did that. The Piazza Don, the, the Don who hung out in the Piazza all day, controlled what happened in that neighborhood. So if something happened to your daughter while she went out to buy milk, you didn't call the police because they weren't around. They couldn't be relied on. What are they going to do? You called the Piazza Don and you said something happened to my daughter yesterday. He puts word out and next thing you know, whoever the culprit was is brought to justice. So that's sort of where it came from. And it's obviously, it, it's obvious rather why the, why the word has lost its meaning in America because we have a strong society that we don't, you know, we don't rely on the Piazza Don for justice. But in the small Italian neighborhoods when I was growing up that were very highly, you know, it, it was, it was a dense, like, for, for example, let's say not even my neighborhood, my neighborhood was my particular neighborhood where I grew up was a mix of German, Irish, Jewish, Italian. But let's say Corona. Corona was a very small Italian enclave, enclave. And that, that enclave, they relied on interior, internal justice rather. When, like, when I was a kid, if you did something wrong in Corona, 
you didn't have to wait for the cops. You were, you were getting, you had to look out, not for the, not for the Plymouth with a red light on top. You had to look out for the, the Cadillac with tinted windows. That's who was coming for you. So, so again, you know, things have changed now. Neighborhoods are more diverse where that strong Italian culture that came from Sicily or even Naples isn't necessarily around as much nowadays. So the word has deteriorated along with sort of like the, you know, the, the, the less and less of a need for it. Right. And I imagine the, the countries where gangs are prolific, they're, the government's typically weak there. And so people like that's, that's the alternative. Right? There you they go. Can- I mean, you just said it. So I kind of like summed it up when I was talking about Sicily, El Salvador, they can't rely on the police, the soldiers, the, 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 the federal or state police, the soldiers. They can't rely on them for, for, to keep them safe from the gangs. The gangs have overcome the streets. So if you're going to, if you open up a McDonald's in El Sal, in San Salvador, for example, if you open up a McDonald's, you need to pay, you need to pay one of the gangs, either 18th Street or MS-13, depending on whose territory that is. And if you say to them, well, why don't you go to the police? They're going to look at you like you have two heads because are you, are you asking me to kill myself? You know, there, there's a story way back when, I don't know if you, you some of your listeners may remember there was an old chain, supermarket chain in Queens when I grew up. I don't know how far it stretched across the country, if at all, but it was called Wallbounds. W-A-L-D-B-A-U-M-S, if I'm not mistaken. Wallbaums was like a supermarket chain started by a family. And Ira Wallbaum, I think, was the sort of the, the patriarch of the family. And at one point or another, he was told to, you know, hold, to sell Castellano, Paul Castellano, the mafia, Gambino family mafia boss, to sell Paul Castellano's chickens or else. So Wallbound puts Castellano's chickens on the shelves, obviously, and he says, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? Fight with Paul Castellano? If he wants his chickens on my shelves, I'll put his chickens on my shelves. So the FBI went to Ira Wallbound and asked him at that time, back in whenever it was, the 70s, and said to him, hey, Ira, why don't you wear a wire and why don't you tell them no and why don't you? And he looked at them and said, why don't you protect me from them? If you can't keep them away from me, then don't expect me to keep them away from me. In other words, you can't rely on me to do it. You know, you have to do that. If he doesn't exist, Paul Castellano, then I don't have to deal with him. But as long as he exists and he's pointing a finger in my chest telling me I have to have his chickens, then I have a problem with him. And the best way to compromise that problem is to, is to acquiesce. So, I mean, you know, there's a good example of, you know, that's just, and nowadays, obviously, the FBI is strong enough to keep the Paul Castellano out of the, usually, you know, they still have a hold in some places, the mob, but they're not as powerful as they used to be. I don't believe they control the chickens anymore in New York, but they did at one time. So the more and more the FBI and, and the, uh, New York State Organized Crime Task Force, for example, gets a hold of what's going on, the less and less people who are in business have to deal with mafia elements. My friend was a union boss. I could t- I think I could say his name. He died, Anthony Calagna. He was a Lucchese member. He was a leader of a union and he was a great guy and they loved him. You know, he negotiated, he got them the best deal. When he inherited the job, there was, he walks into an office and sits down and he told me the story himself. He says, Lou, day one on the job, these envelopes are coming on my desk. Guys are bringing 5,000, 10,000 and they're dropping me off envelopes all week. And, you know, it's built into the desk, you know, and I just inherited it. It wasn't something that I worked. 
You know, it might have been started by Tommy Lucchese, three, three fingers brown Lucchese, decades before Anthony Kalagner ever came into the picture. But when he took over, now I'm not giving, I'm not saying he was an innocent man. He knew exactly what he was doing, you know, but I'm just trying to make the point that when things are infiltrated, if there are innocent people and, and Anthony wasn't, he was a gangster, but if there are innocent people sort of who, you know, there could be a secretary in Anthony's office who just goes to work nine to five, you know, it's up to law enforcement to keep those people out in places like El Salvador. They haven't reached, I think the level that we have with regard to law enforcement, law enforcement in the United States is much stronger than the countries I went to the Camorra in Naples. I went to visit the Camorra in Naples, the Camorra in Naples controls Naples. You know, the, the, the police are doing a darn good job as best they can, but they don't have a hold of it. You know, they're, they're pretty much running Naples. If you go to Naples and you said, I'm going to build a nice hotel over here on the waterfront, you're going to get a knock on your door and the Camorra is going to tell you, I don't care if you go to the police or not. We're going to chop you up and put you in a barrel and dump you out to sea unless you do what we tell you to do. I'm curious, in all the gangs you visited, what do you think, what, what like human needs were these gangs fulfilling? So all, obviously they were like an alternative to government. Yeah, this is a great question. But like what? But why? Why did what? What drew? I mean, typically young men were the ones that are joining these gangs. Like why? Yeah. Why that? I wanted to. Great question. I wanted to create a show. My my idea was to create a show that has some educational value. I don't want to just do. I get contacted all the time. Hey, Louie, you want to do a mob show? Hey, Vinny Papa, what are you doing over here? Hey, go down, see Gino. I don't want to do those shows. I, w- I want to do something that helps people. Where Just like my books. If I write a book, I want it to help people in some way. The same thing with my shows. I wanted to go inside the subculture of the gangs and find out what made them tick. So per- just in answer to your question, the best question that is il- il- illustrative of, of what makes these guys tick is El Salvador, the gangs in El Salvador. I went in there and these guys love their families and yet they were all killers. Every single one of them had to kill to get initiated into the gang. Every single one of them was a tried and true killer. And they had killed a guy, as I said, right before I got there. So what what was behind these guys? They loved their families. They couldn't wait to get visits from their mothers and their daughters and their wives, hugging and kissing them. You know, that's sort of like that. They had that Spanish, like, which is very like Italian, the warm culture where we kiss and hug a lot. Kissing and hugging on visiting day. I was there for visiting day. What made them tick? What happened was there was a story behind it and it was very interesting. When El Salvador got sucked into a civil war, a lot of the fathers were killed or fled the country or disappeared. And a lot of the sons had single moms and a lot of the single moms Desperately tried to keep the family together by working two jobs, three jobs. Some of them fled to the United States and would send money home. And it became a very sad picture for these single young men, these young men who were basically orphaned and they needed family and the gang became their family. And they look at each other as family, just like the mafia. It originally started as family. This is, you know, La Familia, La Cosa Nostra, La Familia. It's the same thing with El Salvador. It was the family that was behind this. And, and the, 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 the need for family, it was fulfilled by the gang. These are my brothers. These are my family. You'll see that over and over in the El Salvador episode. These are my brothers. These are my family. And when they get visits from the women, 
They love them. They kiss and hug them. They love their mothers. They love their wives. They love their daughters. They're not insensitive men. They're not monsters. And I wanted to show the human side of them. And I did that. I think I successfully did that. I cried with one of the guys at the end of the film. I mean, there's no way, you know, I, I, I thought I got to the heart of their humanity. There are heinous criminals. There are heinous crimes. Those people should be punished. You know, I'm not, I'm not a softy. I understand, you know, that we, we have to keep society safe from certain people. For a time, I thought society should be kept safe from myself. You know, I'm, I'm the first one to admit it. You know, I'm running around the streets with guns. What am I doing? So, but, but in another sense, I had humanity in me. Obviously, I'm talking to you now and I hope your listeners could hear it. They did too. No one's a lost cause. We're all, we're all God's children. And I wanted to show that. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be public punished and people should be let out of jail. You deserve to be punished for what you do, but don't forget that people are human. And, and that's what I think I achieved in that, in that, um, you know, look, in the end, at the end of the day, this country is torn apart right now so badly. Our country, the United States, you know, with this, with this, with the political, and I don't want to get into politics, obviously, but with the political, you know, division here. I think the film from sort of like from a left point of view, it was like, we can't show gangs, period. We can't show people who are evil and people who are bad. And from a right point of view, we can't side the, we can't show the good part of them. We can't show the good side of them because then we'll think, you know, people like that who are bad are really good. So I think I got caught in a crossfire where both, both political sides, you know, found wrong in the films. But look, I'm not going to stop going out and doing what I think I do best, which is educating people as to sort of like, you know, these subcultures in society. Well, Lou, where can people go to learn more about the the work you do? I guess the best thing, you know, my I haven't updated my website in years. I should. I'm in the midst of writing a new book right now, and I'm tweaking my the last edits on my novel that I'll be coming out with also beginning of next year, hopefully. But you could go to my website, louisferrante.com, L-O-U-I-S-F-E-R-R-A-N-T-E.com. If there are any questions, you could drop me an email through there. There's a contact sheet. I will get the email. That's the best place. It shows my books and some of the work I've done, but I need to update the site. There's a lot more I've done that's not on there. At some point I will. I just been like totally dedicating all of my time to writing my new book, which I'll hopefully be done with next year uh, and, and have it out next year as well, hopefully. Fantastic. Well, Lou Ferrante, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Lou Ferrante. He's the author of a few books. Check out his books, Unlocked, about his time as a mobster. Also, Mob Rules, about business lessons you can learn from the mafia. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, louisferrante.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash gangsterscode, where you find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finance, health and fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcher Premium, sign up, use code MANLINESS to get a month trial free of Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying new episodes of the AOM Podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give a review on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.